I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is one of the most influential authors in the world. Her work has found its way into Beyonce songs and TED Talks. Her books have sold millions, and she's become a bit of a cultural icon. Now she's publishing her first children's book, and she says it's a personal one because not only is it about her own family, but she's kind of hoping it turns her daughter into a reader. She'll be here to talk about that. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie coming up. I'm Tom Power. You are listening to Q. So when she was just 19 years old, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie packed up her life in Nigeria and moved to the United States. She went from studying medicine to courses like creative writing and African studies. And then in just over a decade, she became one of the most famous writers in the world. You might have read one of her novels like Half of a Yellow Sun or Americana. Maybe you're one of the 34 million people who watched her TED Talk on storytelling. Or if you're a fan of Beyonce at all, you might know her voice from the song Flawless. We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Yeah, that's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, one of those rare authors whose name kind of has the same status as a rock star. I mean, she, she gets on best dress lists and is in Dior campaigns and was the face of a makeup brand. And she's written everything from novels to poems to short stories, nonfiction. But only now has she released her first ever children's book. It's called Mama's Sleeping Scarf. It's inspired by her own family. The main character is a little girl on an adventure with her mom's silk hair wrap. And... The book is published under a name other than Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and you're going to hear why in a second. And we found out it's not the first time she's uh, played around with her name. Here's our conversation. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, th- thanks for being here. It's, I really loved reading the book, but I, when, I, when I picked it up, I was sort of taken aback at first, just, just by the name change. Uh, on, on this book, you're, you're writing under a different name, Unwa Grace James. <laughs> Tell me about that. Apart from just enjoying the idea of having having multiple identities, <laughs> you know, which I think everyone should try it once in a while, <laughs> it's actually my way of honoring two things. My parents, my parents, um, my parents both died uh, not too long ago. Yeah. And, um, sort of my my father died and then my mother died just sort of painfully a short while later and I'm sorry about that thank you and they they meant so much to me I was very very close to my parents and and it's still very difficult it's been um, two years but it's still very difficult and so when I thought about writing this I just really wanted to find a way to honor them and my father's name was James. My mother's name was Grace. And so I kind of invented this thing, Umwa Grace James, which in Ibu Umwa means child of. So literally it means child of Grace and James. But also it's because this children's book is, you know, something I wrote for my daughter. Mm. And 
I'm writing this book for my daughter, but I'm also writing it as a daughter. And I kind of loved the, it just felt to me that there was a kind of um, resonance there. Did, did you know it while you were writing it? Did you, did you, had you made that decision while, while you were writing it? I guess my, my question is, what I'm curious about is not so much like process of publishing, but more like, were you able to inhabit that feeling while you were writing the book? Yes, yes. I mean, I had made no- notes for this book. I'd always, when I when I had my daughter, my daughter is going to be eight in October. Um, before I had her, people would sometimes say to me, well, why don't you write a children's book? And I would say, I can't, I won't, because my vision is too dark. And I do not want to be held responsible for traumatizing innocent, <laughs> lovely children. And I thought that, you know, I start writing and before you know it, somebody's dying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, then, but then I had my daughter and, you know, in the way that everything changes when you have a child. And suddenly I wanted to tell stories for her. And I think I was also encouraged by the fact that my daughter showed absolutely no interest in reading. Oh. And it's something we're still working on. (laughs) So part of my wanting to write for children was really just to (laughs) encourage her (laughs) to read. Um, And so I would make notes. I have little notes I've made about things in her life. And I really remember this day when she, she was still a baby and she, she reached out and she pulled off my, my scarf, the scarf. I, I, I wear a scarf to sleep. Like I think most black women I know. And so she pulled the scarf off and she found it, she, she wanted to play with it. So she starts sort of playing peekaboo with me. And I wrote that down because it was just such a lovely moment. I didn't want to forget it. And after my parents died, that's when I really started thinking about writing a children's book. And so I looked at my notes and I thought this was maybe the most, um, it's the thing that most sort of touched my heart, warmed my heart, remembering her playing with my scarf and also remembering how my parents just absolutely adored her. And so the bits in the book that actually happened and bits that didn't, but could have happened. So I've kind of based it on a life, on a day in our life, um, in our home in Lagos, where my parents would often visit. And they just spent time with my daughter. They had time for my daughter, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. You can feel the love they had for her in, in those pages, you know. I'm glad to hear that. That's what I hoped. You know, I also just wanted it to. I really love this book. I mean, I, I think you're. I mean, I don't. I think sometimes as a writer, you're sort of supposed to try and pretend and be a bit distant and objective. But I, I, I just adore this book. I, and it makes me emotional every time that I open it because of my parents, but also because it's just this. I don't know. It's 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 innocent and it's and again, it's not dark. Which you know, I, I I'm happy that I was able to <laughs> keep the keep the body count low in the uh, yes in the yes. I book, mean, it's, right? it's it's incredible. So I'm just so proud of myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a, as an interviewer who does these kind of this kind of show, you know, one of the things you try to steer away from is sort of like purpose in 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 writing or like result in writing. You try to try to work mm-hmm. sort of like mindfully on the on the art itself. But in in your case, I'm going to ask. Did your daughter end up reading it? You were hoping she might she might read, might encourage her to read it. Did it work? <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering, should I tell you the truth or ah. should I tell you the more elegant? No. 
Actually, yes, I did read it to her. So I'll tell two things. When the draft was finished, which I later made some changes to, um, I said to her, you know, Mama's just finished writing a book. Do you think you'd like to read it or would you like to read this one from the library? And she, without missing a single beat, says the one from the library. Oh. Which I thought meant, okay, this child has no interest in this. Um, so I went back and I made some changes to it. And she actually, um, she liked it. And I think she, um, and now that it's out, you know, sort of she's seen the book and she's seen the illustrations, which I think are just so beautiful. She She's taken kind of ownership of it. So now she says the book that mama wrote about me. Oh, oh, that's beautiful. It, and so it makes me quite, it makes me really happy. She's, so I think she's looking forward. She said to me um, a few days ago, when when is it going to be out so everyone can see it? So that made me happy. Uh, that's a beautiful thing. And as you know, it's not just you either. You know, we were having a conversation in our in our office about about the book when when it sort of came our way and it was it was um, people were kind of leafing through it on on the desk here in the office and we were talking about how like this is the first time I mean that uh, most of us had seen a silk hair wrap in a children's book. I mean, <laughs> even though as you mentioned, you know, a, a lot of women, black women in particular, an, an everyday object. I mean, did that cross your mind while you were writing this? I think when I started making the notes for it, no, because, you know, for me, it's just perfectly ordinary. But when I decided to publish it and you know have it be the children's book that I would write, I thought that there was something also lovely about not just celebrating my parents, my daughter, um, the ordinariness of life, but also this kind of particularity of black life. Right. I think that and and the reason I think it's lovely is because it's it's still mostly invisible. This idea that things that are ordinary to a large number of people um, in the world still is um, unfamiliar yeah. to many other people in the world. And yeah. so I just thought it would I just thought there's something lovely about it, I think. And I, and by the way, I should I should encourage everyone to um, wear a scarf to sleep. Um, even you, Tom. I, I don't know if you have hair, but um, not only that, general... I have I have hair on my head <laughs> and hair on my face. Like I have a beard as well. So, so that also might help. I'm told that this is the thing about scarves; they really preserve moisture, and so it doesn't matter what texture your hair is, it pres- it, it just helps your hair keep its moisture. You think the beard too? Should I do a beard scarf too? I I think that might be a good idea. But the problem would be, where would you knot it? I mean, maybe I, I, I'm just trying to visualize it. But... I could do like a mummy style full face. You there know, you go. You know, That's and it, perfect. it works as I can go to sleep too to keep the room. You know, <laughs> be really good. It's, it, when you mentioned that, uh, I'm struck by what you said there. That things that are so ordinary to some are invisible to to others. And you know that reminds me of your TED talk, right? The dangers of a single mm-hmm. story, where you talk about you know being influenced by a lot of American and, and British books as a child. So, like, how how does the story compare to the books that were mm-hmm. sort of around when you were a kid? I so you know, growing I grew up in Nigeria. Uh, you know, grew up in a university campus, so surrounded by books. But most of those books were not about me or my experience, and I loved them. I'm happy that I read them. But I think that the impression that I had as a child was that you know, a book was something that happened somewhere else. And I think this book, Mama's Sleeping Scarf, I'm hoping. Actually, I know will join this kind of, um, I think that there's now a very beautiful, very multifaceted movement to diversify children's books. And 
I think that this book is going to be part of that movement. I think it's really important for people to read all kinds of stories, you know, and it's important to read stories about other people, but it's also really important to read stories that reflect your reality. And there's something I think about sort of going out into the world, being armed with knowledge about how the world actually is. I find it to be both practically important, but also emotionally um, important. How how long did it take you to break that in your in your own writing? Huh, when I well, I, I've been writing for you know I started writing as a child. I, when I think when I was nine, I thought I was a best selling writer. Yeah, and at the time, <laughs> um, at the time, I was just I was just regurgitating what I was reading. So when I was when I was in primary school in a small university town in Nigeria, and at the time I had not left Nigeria ever. I was writing stories about children who were playing in the snow and um, eating apples, and I had never seen snow. Yeah, yeah. It took, um, I'm going to say it took reading African writers. So maybe when I was sort of 12, 13, that's when I started sort of realizing that I could in fact write about my own reality, that my own world was worthy of literature. The, the thing, maybe similarly that I love uh, about the story, and maybe I sort of love about stories in general, is that the narrative is supposed to go that you you discover that, you discover to write about your your own experiences, the, your specific experiences, the experiences of a, of a number of people, but like your, your own experiences. And the world catches on, and your book gets published, and you become, you know, what, what you are today. I, I don't know what it says about my own psychology, but... I'm always very interested in sort of the reality of that path and how actually it takes a really long time and there are a, a lot of rejections. And, mm-hmm. you know, for someone who gets praised for the, the specificity, which is a hard word to say, of your storytelling, you, you did get a lot of no's, right, when you started mm-hmm. when you started writing novels at first and, and trying to publish novels. Yes, many, many no's. And at the time, of course, to get a no is, is kind of a, a small, devastating... Um, smack <laughs> on your on your confidence but i think it, i think it's the story of creativity in general um, when i started when i decided to try and get published in the us because i actually had published some terrible poetry and a terrible play in nigeria um when i was in secondary school <laughs> right and then <laughs> when I, I hope nobody ever actually sees those things yeah. but but I they're, here, on, they're on ebay I, right now <laughs> oh god no <laughs> And I remember the first rejection and it was a very sort of um, form generic rejection. And I was so taken aback because I thought, you know, I thought I had written this wonderful thing and many, many more followed. Some of it was, I think, I just, it, you know, it wasn't the right home for what I was writing. Some of it was, and this is what some of the agents said to me, that I was different. I was unfamiliar. Um, an agent said to me, I don't know how to sell you because you're not like anybody else. What did they mean by that? They meant, and, and this person also said that the African writer that um, people knew was Chino Achebe, who was my father's age and whose writing was very different from mine. And I think in general at the time, publishing, and, and I think still in some ways, the publishing um, has this kind of people like to publish somebody who's like somebody who's been published before so that they can say, here's the new, you know, here's the new so-and-so. 
here's the new Margaret Atwood. Yeah. And yeah. so there was nobody that that they could say that uh, about me. To, uh, there was nobody who I was like in that way. And so they just didn't know what to do with me. And so I actually took a really lovely small publishing house to um, to take me on. And I remember the agent who signed me on, she said, I will take a risk on you. What do you learn by going through rejections? I really think uh, resilience, and it might sound too easy. I should say that, I should preface that by saying, well, you learn depression <laughs> and you learn to lie in bed and eat too much chocolate and all of those <laughs> things, right? But but eventually you learn resilience. And and in, I really believe that it was good for me. I really do. I think had I had I um, been published right away, I think my entire approach would have been different. I think sometimes that when things are too easy, it um, it makes you more likely to be complacent. And I don't think that one needs that in creativity. And, you know, and also it just gives me stories to tell. I mean, can you imagine how boring it would be if I said, oh, and so I got published right away. Um, first, first and also, nine years old, I did become a best-selling <laughs> author, and it did work out. And, you know, yeah, it'd be a thirty-five-second interview, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be. Right? And also, and also, I should say um, rather unkindly that I have a long list of agents that um, rejected me, and from time to time, I uh, open my computer, open that document, and go. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. yeah, I would do the same thing. You know, it's it was amazing to see also just like how, I mean, things got so, the, the books did so well. And then your own um, self started to become so, so influential. I mean, I was, I read something really interesting. There are parents, I mean, who have named their, their children Ch- Chimamanda, but... If I understand this correctly, that's a name that you created. <laughs> Indeed. Can you can, I'm, I'm, can you tell me? I'm I did not know that this was out there. Or you must have very good detective powers. <laughs> I'm wearing one um, of those fedoras with a press <laughs> thing in the side right now. Um well I so I yes, I did actually make up that name, but it, it means something in Igbo. And I was just really lucky. I um I, I don't want to tell the story because I don't want anybody to know that okay. I've for a long time wanted to have an English name because I'm very ashamed of it now. But um, I did have an English name and, and I kept wanting. And, and when I um, when I became sophisticated enough to know that hungering after an English name was proof of my colonized mind, <laughs> I, say, I say this with half in jest. Right. Um, I really just wanted to, to have an Igbo name. And and I remember it just came to me, Chimamanda. And in Igbo, it means my God will not fall down, which I also take to mean that my spirit is unconquerable. And so I did it. And so I took that on as my name and um, and my parents were okay with it. And it's just lovely that it's now become a name in Nigeria for you know, parents name their children that it's um, actually I'm told it's one of the most popular names now for girls in Igbo land. Yeah, what what does that what does that mean to you? <laughs> I you know, I didn't think that would happen. Now that it has, it really does mean a lot to me. I find it um, on on so many levels 
meaningful. I, I'm, I'm moved very much by it, but also because I'm very proudly and very um, sort of happily Igbo. I'm, my, my culture means a lot to me. The language means a lot to me. I find Igbo to be very beautiful. And there's there's a, there's just something lovely about feeling that I've contributed to this culture in this very in this very um, meaningful way that there are many Chimamandas who will go on and out into the world and none of that would have happened if I had not, um, you know, made up this name. It, it, that, that, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we did the sleuthing that we did. <laughs> I'm happy about the fedora as well. I mean, it's pretty amazing. She's uh, only acknowledged that once before. That was Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, one of the most renowned writers in the world, revealing that she kind of invented her name. Um, shout out to our producer, Vanessa Greco, for tracking down the very obscure interview where she, she found that. Shout out to Vanessa. This is a pretty big day for parents who've named their kids Chimamanda. I'm Tom Power. More of our conversation is coming up, including how she feels about being called a celebrity author and the, we'll say, complex relationship she has with the Beyonce song with her voice in it. That's after this on Q. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts. It took, I'm going to say it took reading African writers. So maybe when I was sort of 12, 13, that's when I started sort of realizing that I could in fact write about my own reality, that my own world was worthy of literature. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who grew up in Nigeria thinking that books were things that were written about other people, specifically kids that didn't look like her, kids that didn't live where she did. And she made a lot of changes that way. Today, Chimamanda is one of the most famous writers in the world, known for acclaimed novels like Half a Yellow Sun and Americana. Recently, she wrote a children's book for her daughter. It's called Mama's Sleeping Scarf. And we were talking about that book, and we were talking about uh, Chimamanda's motivations for writing. And then we ended up talking about how she has become uh, a very rare thing, which is a celebrity author. You know, she's in Dior ad campaign. She's on Best Dress List. She's on stage with like Oprah and, and Meghan Markle. And she's the face of ma- makeup brands. I, I mean, I remember when she she was the one asked, I think by the New York Times, to do the review of Barack Obama's memoir. So she's, yeah, she's an author, but she's a very rare celebrity author. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has a very unique type of celebrity. And part of that started with one moment. Let me ask you about this, and uh, I do it with some sort of like self-awareness that that um, it's something that comes up a lot, but I am curious about it, and I don't get to talk to you very often. Uh, about the Beyonce sampling, um, so Beyonce, for, for people who don't know, uh, member of Destiny's Child, I'm only joking, Beyonce sampled We Should All Be Feminists, your TED Talk, and um, there are going to be people listening to this right now who might not realize that you're the voice in the middle of, of Flawless. 
We teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. You wake up, post up, round round in it. You mentioned you know, authors earlier, but not many authors have crossover moments like this. H- how did you react when you heard your voice in that song for the first time? Uh, how did I react? I, I thought maybe I should have spoken a bit more clearly when I gave that TED Talk. Um, because self-criticism is something that I do very well, yeah. too well, perhaps. Yeah. No, but... Uh, but um, so so again, it's one of those things, of course, I didn't give that TED Talk thinking, oh, one day Beyonce will love it and she will say she wants to sample it. So when it happened, I thought it was, well, first of all, I really, really respect that she uses her incredible platform to talk about something like feminism. Um, and so I thought there's so many young people all over the world, actually not just young people, who because of the song, we'll start to think about the idea of feminism. And when I when I heard my voice, you know, apart from sort of cringing a little, I thought, yeah, this is lovely. There are many, many kids who are going to go online right now and Google feminism. What's your relationship like with the song? I think it's a lovely song, um, but I have to tell you that it, I, I'm not very, I'm not very sort of pop culture literate. I'm... Um, very sadly, um, my taste in music is very narrow and stops at about 1962. Like who? Who's who's that? Who, who is this? <laughs> like what? A lot of it, by the way, is West African high life. Right. But I, I'm, I love Nina Simone. Um, I sort of like a certain school of Black American music. Okay. All of this is to say that I think Flawless is a lovely song and I'm really happy that my voice is in it. But most of all, I'm happy about what you know Beyonce using her platform to talk about feminism, I think is lovely. But I'm just not a person who can tell you about contemporary music. No, I, I, I understand. Between the fedora, you know, I also listened to music that was made <laughs> by people gathered around a barrel in 1923. So, so I, I understand it. Um, but it's, it's funny, though, you mentioned that. You mentioned that it's so nice to hear Beyonce, you know, sing about feminism and the idea that people could listen to Flawless and then, um, and then Google feminism. It made me think that one of the things you're also famous for is this open letter you wrote to a friend who had just had a daughter with these suggestions on how to raise her as a, as a feminist. And, you know, earlier we were talking about the children's book and your own, your own child. Is there a specific part of that list that you've been focusing on in, in your house? <laughs> That's a lovely question. Well, I think in largely what I've, what I've realized since I had my daughter, I wrote that before I had a child. And then I had a child and I realized, my God, it's difficult. And how easy it is to pontificate about raising a child when you do not have a child. And so the answer to the question would be all of it. All of the suggestions I am struggling to do, but still struggling. If anything, I think it would be the um, make her love books. It's not a struggle, but it's really important to me now at this stage in her life. I think other things will become important at other stages. I mean, she's only seven and three quarters. So there's a suggestion where I write about being on board with romance. It's not quite the time yet, I don't think. Is reject likeability 
which is on that list, harder when you're an author who is um, subject to reviews and, and, and criticism and sales? Um, no, I've always, I've, I've just never believed in practicing likability. I've always believed in, in being who I am and, um, you know, and knowing that not everybody's going to like me. And, and, you know, I, I've always just sort of had that attitude of, well, I don't like you too. So no, I, I think the thing about being, being a writer and being reviewed is, at least for me, it's mostly about protecting my creative vision, which is why I do not read reviews of my work. Uh, yeah. um, and and creating and and my creative vision and the protection of it, I think, also necessarily requires um, not knowing the good or the bad, because I, I worry that you know if I know what I'm being praised for then I might be tempted to keep repeating it. And if I know what I'm being criticized for, I might then become defensive about it in my work. But it, it, it's the validation seeking that, that people find hard. Like I put this thing out. I, I just talked to a comedian who said, I said, what's the hardest part about writing a book? And she's a stand-up comedian. And she said, I didn't get, she wasn't joking. She said, I don't get laughs. I don't know how mm. it's going. Mm. Um, well, sometimes you kind of know. I mean, you you know from, and I, I really care so much more about sort of what what the ordinary reader, so to speak, thinks. So sometimes you you kind of get a sense. You know, I meet people who will say, "I loved your book." Sometimes you meet people who, by the way that they talk about your book, you can tell they really didn't like it, but oh. they're just happy to meet somebody who is sort of quote unquote famous. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I take both, and and. Um, <laughs> But but I really, you know, writing, of course, there is there is very much uh, an element of seeking validation. And it it um, makes me very happy to receive praise about my work. But I really do think that it's not it's not the major thing for me, my ability to write truly and in a way that just makes me feel whole and true. That's the most important thing. That, that leads to kind of how I wanted to close things off, which is that many of your books are tributes to your family. You know, Half of a Yellow Sun was for your grandfather. Notes on Grief was for your father. We, were just, we just spent a, a lovely time talking about how your latest book is for your daughter. Is, is writing in this way a, a way of preserving family memory or is it about showing love to them? Oh, I hadn't, you know, just hearing that, I just I hadn't thought about that. I find that incredibly moving and... Yes, I think maybe the answer is yes. And my family means so much to me. And, yeah, and it's just made me think about my father, who would have been so proud to see this book, I think. That's a, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for making the time for us. And you too, Tom. Thank you. That was the writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She just published her first children's book. It's called Mama's Sleeping Scarf. But I should let you know, you'll find it under a new alias for her, Noir Grace James. All right, that is it for the show today. Um, thanks so much for streaming or downloading, um, however you got this. Again, a big shout out to Vanessa Greco for tracking down. I felt like Nardwar being able to go, why isn't your real name? You know, like I felt like, by the way, Nardwar came on the show, like, I don't know, seven years ago, six, six, seven years ago. And I just got the thing he gave me framed. I'll tell you what, I'll put, I'll, I'll put a picture of it up on my Instagram. I'm at Tom Joe Power there. I'm at CBCQ on Instagram for the show. All right, we'll see you soon. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.